What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. We're back with part two of our book review of Deep Work by Cal Newport. Today, my co-host is Chad Lott, senior copywriter at Whole Foods. Like, I spend an enormous amount of time reading food blogs, reading all the New York Times books that come out, um, like, looking at policy research, like, all this crazy stuff. A, a big chunk of what I do at work is research, and it allows us to stay pretty forward. I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the work that we do there. This is another episode of Innovation and Leadership. Today we're going to be picking from the 400 plus books on business, marketing, and strategy that we've read and talking about one of them that we feel like can have a big impact on innovators and entrepreneurs as they try to invent the future. As always, in addition to learning from the show, we hope you'll consider clicking on the Child Rescue tab on our website, iCollective.co, to see how you can help change the life of a child that's been rescued from abuse and trafficking. Also, we love all of you who've been emailing to tell us what parts of the episodes you really liked or, or what was helpful to you. And to everybody else, if you have time, we'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email at stories at iCollective.co. And now on to the episode. Um, Chad, when we were finishing off part one, we talked about what about those people who don't have a four-hour block? Like, oh, great, Chad and Jess, like, this is awesome for you, but uh, I actually have a life. What, how am I supposed to do deep work? Sure. Um, and I, I thought one of the interesting things was when he was talking about um, that fellow professor who just wrote the book with Sheryl Sandberg. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, I, I remember uh, I remember the professor he's talking about, but I, I don't remember his name. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll look it up here. But he talked about how this guy, who is Adam Grant. Adam Grant, he wrote, uh, he wrote a book called Give and Take that's done extremely well. Anyways. Talked about how Adam Grant has put out like an inordinate number of published papers, which is like the key to getting tenureship at universities, right? Sure. And how, you know, the guy's gone on to become a New York Times bestselling author, while at the same time putting out all these articles to help him get tenureship, right? And sure. um, I thought one of the things that was interesting is when he was uh, he was saying that what he started to do was he turned off the radio. And on his commute back and forth to, to the office and to work, that he started treating it um, like his chance for diving into something. And it was interesting, like the volume of things that he was able to make internal discoveries about by dedicating his commute time to deeper thinking. And because yep. he was, you know, it didn't take a lot of conscious thought to put one foot in front of the other as he was walking back and forth to campus and things like this. Um, and, you know, now as a the youngest tenured, highest rated professor at the Wharton School of Business, um, that he that he was able to condition himself to be able to get into a state of deep work quicker than others. Right. Um, and to me, that was like I thought that was a great hack of, OK, how can we start implementing this now? You know, other than getting up early, you know, or which, you know, from a willpower perspective is probably going to be better than staying up late. Right. 
right. other than getting up early, what's what's another example of how someone could start, you know, building building the deep work muscle? So, so I, I really like how you talk about it being a deep work muscle because he talks pretty explicitly about the idea that this is something that you have to develop strength in. Um, the the concentration requires it requires development, and the the whole idea of just not listening to something on your way to and from work was something I, I implemented immediately. I have a two mile bicycle ride to and from work. I'm really fortunate to live pretty close to work. And I had been just listening to a podcast on my way to and from or like listening to some sort of book. So I, I basically like throughout my entire day, there's not a time when information wasn't just coming into my into my head actively or rather passively. Uh, so the first thing I did after reading Deep Work was I, I don't list, I don't put headphones in on my bicycle ride to and from work. And I find that the amount of ideas that get generated from that 20, 25 minutes a day, uh, the total, like about 12 and a half minutes each way, because I like to ride pretty fast because I'm a super biker. Uh, but the... the <laughs> But the, the reason why, uh, like, I, I would just hit work with, like, this almost calm mind. It, it, it sort of does what people who are into transcendental meditation claim that transcendental meditation does. And, I, you know, I don't have a, a, a negative or positive thing to say about it because I've never tried it. But there seems to be something about bookending your workday with quiet, reflective time that is extremely helpful. I mean, like, I, usually I'll, I'll have checked my email already before I, I, I start headed to work. So I'll often organize my day and my brain. And so when I hit the office, I, I've, I, I've got a, a really, really strong plan of what I want to do. And then at the end of the day, when I'm riding home, is usually when I start working on my own creative projects, whether it be uh, my blog posts or outlines for podcasts that I'm working on or, or stories that I'm writing. Uh, I, I find that that quiet time really helps me reset for when I enter my, my personal time. Um, and it's been huge. And I, I think that's something that, say you have an hour-long commute, right? You don't want to just sit in silence for an hour. Like, I think a lot of people might not want to do that. But, you know, can you take 15 minutes of your commute and just think? I mean, at, at first, it's very uncomfortable. At first, you're like, oh, man, what am I doing? But as you relax, you get more flexible and you're, you're allowed, you start to go into deeper thought, which I, I've been completely blown away by. Well, it's interesting. You know, he talks about these four kinds of deep work, right? Like he mm -hmm. says, journalistic is hardest when you just right, switch, try to right. switch into it at, you know, whenever you can, right? Like journalists, they get, they build that deep work muscle because they have to write on a deadline constantly, right? But he right. says there's the monastic version where you like radically minimize shallow work in your life. He has those examples right. of people who have autoresponders on their email that says, I will get back, you know, if your email interests me, I will get back to you. <laughs> Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, he's got the he's got the bimodal where he's like try to find long stretches of deep work, like possibly for days or weeks, you know, go to a cabin and write things like that. Or the rhythmic, right. which is like the schedule time every day to do deep work, make it habitual. Um, sure. And, you know, that, you know, your bike ride sounds like it's fitting into that rhythmic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like and what you're talking about is he talks about the um, they're like philosophies of deep work. So like once you've decided to implement it, like what's the best thing to do? What's the best route to take? And these sort of just remind me of like workout regimens. It's like, are you training for a marathon? Are you trying to be a power lifter? Do you want to just general physical fitness? It, you really think about like your particular goals and then you adopt the model of um, the model of deep work that you perform. And, and so the rhythmic is really because I have 
you know, I have, you know, a nine to five and then I also have a bunch of creative pursuits to do in the evening and, you know, I'm married and I have dogs and stuff. So like you, you have all this, this time, uh, that is being gobbled up by these various activities. And, and it, it seems very counterintuitive that you would protect time for the purposes of just seemingly doing nothing, but that doing nothing is really, really important because it's like that book. It sounds so dumb. Like it sounds so dumb, right? And then some people just don't like the look of it. Like, like my wife, right? She works harder than anybody I know. She does like 14 hour days all the time. And she's one of these people that uh, she's kind of a linchpin person in her, her organization. So basically she's on the phone or talking to people all day. Like people are calling into her to find out what they should be doing. Right. So I think that like deep work in her work life would be pretty difficult to do because she's kind of in startup mode right now. Um, and on Fridays I work from home and it was like two or three in the afternoon and I had been working pretty hard and I was trying to come up with a name for something, which if, if, if you do any copywriting or naming or anything like that, you know that like coming up with a name is a pretty difficult thing. Um, especially one that doesn't have a trademark associated with it, has a URL that's available. Like naming is probably the hardest thing to do in copywriting. Uh, which is why some organizations get paid like a hundred grand to just come up with your new, new stupid name. Uh, so I just went and laid down on the couch. You know, I'd read Deep Work. I was like, oh, look at me. I'm enlightened. I know how to do Deep Work. So I'm laying down on the couch with my eyes closed. And she, she was working from home too. And she walks by and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, what do you mean? What am I doing? I was like, I'm working. She's like, you have your eyes closed. And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking. And she's like, well, what if somebody saw you? I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like so what if somebody saw me? Like all they need to see is at the very end, I have an awesome name for their thing on time, you know? So it, it really it, it is like, I could see if you're in an organization, like Whole Foods is great. Like it, it, it is a really great organization. Um, and that like the more and more of this stuff I've tried from this book at work, the more like no one really cares how you do the thing that you do, just as long as the result that you come up with is awesome. Right. So um, since I read this book, we had, uh, we've opened up a new store in Northern California and we got a lot of praise for how, how good the marketing materials were and how the, co- the copy was and how lean it was and how dialed in it was. And really, I mean, there were times like we were really busy, but we spent more time sort of like looking at websites together and reading books and even watching food network shows. And it doesn't seem like it would be work, but it all contributed to success you know so it's it, it's like th- this is something i think would be t- difficult for a manager is like okay how do you evaluate if that person is sleeping or thinking i don't know right yeah like I, I have no idea but i know that it does for a lot of people the way deep work looks is kind of weird because you've been trained by that tailorization model of industrial work that you were you were discussing in the in the first episode where you know everybody's doing a thing it's measured um, and I think you see that that measuring of ultimate productivity sort of doesn't work. I mean, look at Zynga. Zynga was super hot for a second. Zynga is a game company out here in, in the Bay Area. They were awesome. And, and made Farmville and some of those games, right? Yeah, they made Farmville, right? And the kind of like where they became big was they basically just copied other people's stuff and kind of made, uh, they were kind of first out the gate with a really robust pay-to-play sort of model. So you know, probably most people listening to this are familiar with Farmville, but, you know, resource management games where you can spend real money to upgrade assets in the game. That, that, that was their model. And they really prided themselves on this idea that every single thing that every single employee did was always measured. 
So the CEO was famous for sitting in front of this crazy screen where he could look at every single employee and judge them based on all these crazy metrics. But the one metric that they weren't apparently judging anybody on was creative and creating cool new games because their games are terrible. You know, like anybody can make, have one or two successes, right? And now their company is basically in free fall. And you wonder if they had put more, you know, this is like armchair quarterback CEO type stuff. You know, I'm, I'm no expert or anything, but you wonder <laughs> if they had put a little bit more into this kind of deep work model instead of this constant productivity model, maybe they would be in a better place right now. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Probably. No, listen, the, I mean, the whole premise of the book is that distraction kills deepness, right? which is where like the highest value concepts come out of. And um, I'm thinking about this idea you just brought up about, you know, being at Whole Foods, being the copywriter, you've got to come up, you've got to come up with something novel that's going to magnetically attract more people to Whole Foods or to this product. And, you know, everybody else out there is doing the same thing. So you can't blend in. Right. And it makes me think there's this great book uh, by Alexandra Watkins called Hello, My Name is Awesome. She, uh, she used to work for Ogilvy and now her entire firm all they it's called eat my words all they do is is name things for like disney and microsoft and fujitsu and all these companies right and right. uh you know having multiple failed startups myself um <laughs> we've been through a lot of naming because every time you do another one you got to come up with another name right 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 and there's like so much second guessing and there's so much like you get all excited and then the next day you hate it or three of you like it and the fourth person hates it and you know like it is like mind-numbing to come up with something that stands out but hasn't been done but isn't you know isn't like spelt in a way that nobody can say it you know what I mean all these kind of things right um but uh what else like what other ways does it show up for you at work when you well let's talk about this your job as a copywriter at Whole Foods um describe you know there's what you do all day but describe what the effect is that they're buying from that work from you? Like, is it, they're hoping to sell more stuff. They're hoping to attract more lifelong customers. Like, what do you, how do you frame what Whole Foods hopes the effect is from paying you to do copywriting for them? Right. So, you know, all of that stuff is, are, are things that the type of work I do touches. Um, what I really think about doing is like when, when I, when I'm working on stuff for two, the Whole Foods market, I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to communicate value and benefit of the product in a pretty typical sales manner. So, you know, highest quality beef, lowest prices available. That sort of thing is really important to do. And in that job, a lot of what I'm doing is really defending clarity. Uh, there's a lot of pressure sometimes to be like, oh, what's a new way of saying great sale? Like, no, just go with great sale because that's what people know. But I'm also trying to come up with uh, on-brand, novel, interesting ways of just communicating with customers. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a, there's, at our Silicon Valley store that just opened, uh, one of the Silicon Valley stores, they have a, a bulk cookie display. And, you know, it's a pretty techie-oriented, or, uh, you know, store. And so we needed some way to say, okay, um, tasty cookies. Like, basically, it could have literally said tasty cookies uh, and that it's bulk pricing. So you just put them in a bag, right? So that can, like, how exciting can that be? But when you're thinking about, uh, you know, the community and kind of what's funny, the copy ended up being enable cookies. You know, which is kind of a tech phrase thing. I mean, it, it's just like a really say, say that again. It ended up being what? Enable cookies. Okay. Which is just a fun, it's just a funny tech like coding right? language. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like some people are going to get it, some people aren't going to get it, but the right people are going to get it, and they're going to laugh. And there's all kinds of that stuff peppered throughout the store, um, and that's the kind of thing I'm I'm usually trying to communicate 
just, just sort of like a little bit of whimsy, you know. It's like his, a curl, at, you know, a, a half smile, a partial, get his partial yeah, smile going. Like an end group, you know, because like the thing with Whole Foods and its history is like, you know, it, it deserves a lot of credit for getting organic foods to where it is today. You know, there, there was a, a period of time from, I would say, 1980 to probably 2002, where to have any sort of higher level food consciousness was a, a tribal sort of thing. Like it really put you on the outside and made you sort of a special, interesting person. So for a long time, just being a Whole food shopper was kind of a special thing, you know, and then you get into the 2002 to 2010, where the pricing starts to get very competitive because what happened was during that time period, the, the standards got a lot higher. So when you're increasing the standards of what could or couldn't be done to create a product, you're, you're in one way, you're creating inefficiencies. So these really high level products that are great and healthy become more expensive, right? And now what's pretty cool is organic food has become so big and the consumer demand has become so big that more bigger organizations are spending money on better foods. So it's bringing the cost of production down. So um, that does two things. One, it means that Whole Foods is getting more and more affordable all the time, which is killer. But it also means other organizations are embracing organics and can, because of their scale, can do it even cheaper. So our biggest competitor for Whole Foods, and this is no secret, are organizations like Walmart, you know, who have massive, massive buying power. Because I mean, Whole Foods has, I don't know, like 420, 430 stores or something like that. Walmart has thousands, right? So what I'm trying to do with the coffee is kind of really still kind of keep on that vibe of like, hey man, a whole food shopper is kind of an in-group shopper. And the the culture of the company is such that there, there are real deal food fanatics in the company, people who are just super into exploring and finding new things. And if you want the healthiest, coolest thing earliest, I mean, Whole Foods is a great place to go. So like we're always trying to communicate food cool. And that sort of thing you can't just sit down and crank on that. Like I spend an enormous amount of time reading food blogs, reading all the New York Times books that come out, um, like looking at policy research, like all this crazy stuff. Like a, a big chunk of what I do at work is research and it allows us to stay pretty forward. I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the work that we do there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You talk about that, that consistent research and the consistent, like how you've, you, you've made it a rhythm, right? And right. he talks about like, but well, I mean, I'm thinking about stories from the books when it talks about Jerry Seinfeld and how he says like, he gives instructions to that junior comic on how to get good at being a comedian. He's like, totally. get out a big calendar, get out a big red marker every day, write a joke, <laughs> then great. Take, take the marker, put a big red X on the calendar. Yep. Pretty soon you're going to like seeing those red X's having them all in a yep. row. And the idea of of missing a day and having the calendar stare at you and having that glaring day with the missed red X, that'll have mm -hmm. a bigger weight on you. It's like, you know, in the book, they talk about that New York Times writer, David Brooks, who says, like, essentially, like, creative minds think like artists, but work like accountants, you know, like, right. like they repetitively put in the hours of the deep work, knowing that over time, the best stuff is going to rise like the cream, you know, like. Right. Um, you and I have talked about Stephen Pressfield before, um, mm -hmm. guy that wrote Legend of Bagger Vance, amongst some pretty awesome historical fiction books. But uh, his series, The War of Art, you know, and Do mm -hmm. the Work and Turning Pro, that series about like putting your butt in the seat every morning at 9 a.m. And uh, I, I saw those same things, themes through Deep Work, where he talks about like, you know, the willpower to just say like, hey, I'm not guaranteeing you're going to come up with something great right off the bat. But if you right. don't, you know, if you swear off everything else where 
there's kind of nothing else to do, like, because you won't allow yourself to do anything like check your email besides what right. you're supposed to be doing. But, like, history has proven if you do that enough times that your brain will start to try to process things and come up with something better than you come up with before. Um, I mean, I thought, you know, one other one I'd love to get your thoughts on is um, this idea of, like, signaling to yourself this really matters. Like, you know the guy who took, who realized he wrote better on planes when nobody could call him? So when he had to do oh, that right. big manuscript, he booked a plane flight to Japan and back right. <laughs> so that he could write the whole time and he wrote an entire manuscript in one flight. Or like J.K. Rowling, when she was finishing the last Harry Potter book, there was like too many distractions and kids at home. So she rented a hotel room at a really nice hotel to just go for the day and be, have it be quiet. And made right. so much progress that she just kept going back until she finished Harry Potter. Any yeah, thoughts so, about that kind of thing? Yeah, so in the book, that's one of the philosophies of deep work. So you have to kind of, the, and the one that he's referring to there is the one he calls the grand gesture, which is you go in and you draw a line in the sand, you hide away, and you go create your masterpiece until it's done. Um, and for me, I've written great stuff on planes. Um, one of my goals is I have, I never go on vacation. I have something insane, like 300 PTO hours saved up. And what I'd like to do after we're done with holiday this year at Whole Foods is I want to take off like three weeks and just go see if I could crank out a novel, you know, just really just, I mean, really full on staycation. I just walk up the street to the public library and stay there for eight hours a day. Like it's my job. Um, pretty rare though. Like the person who can do that sort of thing is a person without kids is a person who has, you know, you know, didn't have to go. I knew you had an advantage on me. Yeah. Like the kid thing is huge. Right. Um, you know, so I, I'm always very careful with my advice when I tell people to do things because, you know, I, it's just me and my wife, you know, I, I'm I, mostly other than, you know, maintenance of our like pool urban loft. Like there's, there's not very much, I, I'm not really responsible to anybody else for, for this sort of time. But that's the thing that's so crazy is like, I, you look at yourself and you're like, man, if you could do the grand gesture, what would you do? And you have to start thinking about how you're going to start carving out time, right? And that's one of the things, if you were to make a BuzzFeed list about this book, like top 10 things to do from deep work, one of the major ones is his uh, rule number three, which is quit social media. And this is a really sticky one for me because I, I am for sure a bit of a social media addict. Like I'm, I'm always goofing around with my friends. Like, um, I think in the olden days when I was bartending, I would go take smoke breaks and stand outside and hang out with the bouncers before I would go back in and hit work really hard. Um, and social media sort of has that smoke break feel. Like I'll go online, go read an article about, you know, what the new sandwich is that everybody's crazy about in New York, which seems sort of, sort of reference, you know, sort of related to my job. And then sometimes I'll float copy ideas on Facebook. I'll write something funny and say, hey, what do you guys think about this? So I used, I had gotten into this habit of thinking of social media as a useful tool but cal newport <laughs> he, really, made, he made you he really, really re-examine it well he really, he really made me re-examine it because he's like hey what is the opportunity cost of all this like how much time are you spending doing this sort of thing and what, what are you actually doing and and how useful is social media to your life and your job and i started thinking about it i was like man if i were to do a post-mortem on work that i've come up with by interacting with social media it's really low the amount of like positive work. I've yeah. done. You know, what's funny though, is I love how he talks about how rare all this is. Like I, I look mm -hmm. at this, you know, we're about done part two here. And like, we've been talking for this for like 45 minutes. And I still think, man, people listening to this are going to think it's dumb. Like, so you guys want me to do less. 
I don't know how that's going to get me ahead. Right. But yeah. Um, so I, like my pitch is going to be just read the book. Don't even worry about us. Just go read the book. He'll do a way better idea convincing you. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I think about social media and like, because this is so rare, um, you actually have a real opportunity as a brand. Like I wouldn't use up your day on social media, but when it comes to writing things for social media, like if that's how you do client acquisition, right? Yep. I look at like, I, I read almost no blogs out there. I just find most of them are um, not something someone's put deep work into. It's like, oh, I got to get more content cranked out. And it kind of totally. sounds like the other ones and oh, geez, right? But somebody who I will like, I will actually take their emails and click on it is Neil Patel. I don't know if you know the guy that he started Crazy Egg. He started Quick Sprout. He started uh, a few tech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but his and his blog pages, his blog posts are like, sometimes they're like, I don't know, probably be like, 10, 10 or 20 pages if you printed them out. Like they're not a 300 word thing, right? Um, right? But I find his blog posts like as valuable as some of the books that I write. And it is so clear that he has done the deep work to bring something of extremely high quality to bear that, right. um, that I will stop. Like that is one of the things that uh, I will put other things aside to read that blog. Uh, it's it's an incredible differentiator for him. And if you look at like, I don't know, the million plus subscribers that he has compared to most people's blog, I really feel like that's what it would be attributed to is like the level of help that he is bringing the rest of us entrepreneurs and innovators by not just dashing off whatever 300 words will let him check the, I wrote a blog post check mark. Right, right. Um, and he doesn't come out with them every day either, right? You know what I mean? Right. He, he puts yeah. in the time and when they come out, they're awesome. Um, yeah. But listen, what would be your, what's your, what's your final sales pitch of why somebody should be on audible.com getting the audiobook or, or buying this at a bookstore? Well, I think that when you read this book, it, it's going to do a couple things. One, it's going to make you, if you're at all thoughtful, reevaluate the way you spend your time in the day. And it, it's the same way as if like you found yourself, you woke up in your middle age or whatever, and you found yourself 30 pounds overweight, you had to go look in your fridge and evaluate what you should and shouldn't eat. Like this book is going to make you evaluate how you should and shouldn't spend your time. It's also going to get you thinking about what sort of work you really want to be doing. Because as you adopt the practices laid out in the book, you're going to naturally improve your work. I mean, there's just no way. It's like if you went on a diet, you're going to lose weight uh, if you stick to it. Um, You'll also find something uncomfortable, which is that this is all on you. No No one from outside of the world is currently, I mean, who knows a few months from now, like this if this book gets really popular or whatever, it might change, but no one is rewarding you for this deep work just out the gate. Like you're, you're going to actually have to use these techniques to produce really good work for it to make sense in your life. And I think you're either a person who is capable of that or you're a person who's not capable of that. And if you are a person who's capable of utilizing these tools, then I I think you almost have an obligation to do it for your organization, for your own personal happiness. I mean, working like deeper on better projects with less crap is just going to make you a better person to be around. You know, like you'll, you'll, you'll come home, you'll be nicer to your wife. Uh, your friends are going to enjoy you more. And when people ask you, Oh, what have you been doing? You're going to have something better to say. And I'm like, Oh, so busy. I'm like, no, you're not so busy. You just mainline Netflix. When you go home, you're exhausted. When you show up to work and you spend your whole day, like on Buzzfeed in between meetings, you know, like, yeah i love it i love it i'm yeah. laughing at this end because before we started this episode you were talking about how you've been like evangelizing this book you know right and right. like i think you like legitimately like, we're gonna need to make you a missionary badge 
because like you for sure got it in the bloodstream. Um, and what's funny is I'm glad because I feel like I caught it. I feel like it was contagious and I caught it from you and I, I'm making different decisions about structurally how I let other people co-op my time and mm -hmm. how I let technology co-op my time. And it's because this book made me aware of what's happening to me by my, by me choosing not to structure my life differently. And uh, so, so good on you for, for spreading the word, my friend. Yeah. I mean, and this is one of the dudes who, I, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's like, I know that Cal Newport would have zero time to talk to me <laughs> because he's involved in deep work, but of all the marketing gurus and efficiency gurus, out there i think that this is the dude who who's getting it the most right and uh i've i've gotten more out of this book than like any of the tim ferris books i've read i mean those are all good books but any of those tim ferris books any of the seth godin books i've read i mean because it really gets you down to the answer answering the question of why are you even showing up and you're showing up because you want to do something good and if you want to do something good you have to cut the crap out you heard it here first, folks. Cut the crap out of your life. Okay, let's stop there. Thanks for listening. All right, later. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll also check out Child Rescue uh, from the menu on our website, iCollective.co. And if this episode or any other episode really stood out to you or, or you have a story to tell us, please email me um, at the email stories at iCollective.co. Thanks so much. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.